You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Before we get to today's episode, I have my first corrections. The first one is all the way back in episode two, when I was still panicking every time I hit the record button. Spike Jones was not a member of the LA Rebellion filmmakers, a movement around the rise of independent African-American filmmakers who studied at UCLA in the late 60s to late 80s. Spike Jones is a white guy from Maryland, so he definitely wasn't a member of that movement. I ended up having to record that episode twice due to a technical issue with the microphone, so in hindsight, if there was going to be a glaring error like that, it was probably going to be in episode two. Also, last week, I said Elizabeth Banks was going to star in the Bride of Frankenstein reboot. She's actually slated to star in an upcoming Universal Monster film, though not that one. Elizabeth Banks is slated to star in the upcoming The Invisible Woman. So today, we are continuing our Universal Monster mash with a double feature, The Mummy and The Invisible Man, two films with two modern adaptations in the last few years. One of the films killed an entire franchise, and the other threw it a lifeline. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. It was not only this body that I loved, it was thy soul. I destroy this lifeless thing. Thou shalt take its place but for a few moments, and then rise again even as I have risen. Imhotep, this is the place of environment. It is not lawful for me, a priestess of Isis, to see or touch an unclean thing. Come to the altar of Anubis, the guide of the dead. The time has come for the final prayer. What have I to do with Anubis? The ancient rites must be performed over thy body. Then I will read the great spell with which Isis brought Osiris back from the grave. And thou shalt rise again. No. No, I'm alive. I'm young. I won't die. I loved you once, but now you belong with the dead. I am Aung San Amun, but I'm somebody else too. I want to live even in this strange new world. For thy sake, I was buried alive. I ask of thee only a moment of agony. Only so can we be united. The Mummy differs from Dracula and Frankenstein's monster in that the Mummy is not based on a novel. Carl Lindley Jr., the head of production at Universal, was inspired by the unearthing of the sarcophagus of King Tutankhamun in 1922, as well as the alleged curse that followed, to manifest his next movie monster. After six years of fruitless searching, Archaeologist and Egyptologist Howard Carter and his team, financed by English aristocrat Lord Carnarvon, 
had one last chance to find an undiscovered tomb within the region of Egypt known as the Valley of the Kings. Carnarvon was weary of financing the endeavor, which had so far come up with little to nothing. Turns out, last time was a charm, and King Tut's relatively undisturbed tomb was discovered on November 4th, 1922, after one of the water boys tripped over what ended up being the entrance to the tomb. The tomb is one of the best-preserved archaeological sites in ancient Egypt ever to be discovered. Not much is known of King Tutankhamun's life, the son of controversial pharaoh Akhenaten and his father's sister, but we do know he ascended to the throne at the age of nine and married his half-sister Anaxinamun. Unsurprising, because incest, the young king was plagued by illness and deformities. It's like 20 different things if you want to look it up Wikipedia, but it trust me, it's a lot of things. So many things. It is actually unclear how King Tut died, though theories have ranged from foul play to a broken leg to malaria. But regardless of this, his sudden death around 19 years of age meant that his tomb was not prepared. It is believed based on the lack of opulence of the tomb that it was likely meant for someone else. The tomb had been robbed twice in the early days of Tut's burial, but had become lost to time after being buried by debris from other tombs and builders' houses being built over the entrance of the tomb. Within six months of discovery, and two months after opening the tomb, Lord Carnarvon was dead, killed by blood poisoning from an infected mosquito bite. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, of Sherlock Holmes fame, weighed in on the Lord's death, saying he believed it to be the work of elementals, mythical beings, put in place by the young king's priests. There were rumors that Carnarvon's face was injured in the same spot as King Tut's eventually revealed mummy, though this is actually unsubstantiated. The death of Carnarvon was amplified by the ultimately false rumor that a curse had been found inscribed within the king's tomb, stating that, quote, they who enter this sacred tomb shall swift be visited by wings of death. Despite this being untrue, it still sparked a media frenzy. However, it is possible that the opening of the tomb did in some way contribute to Carnarvon's death, though in a way less spooky and significantly more sciencey manner. Upon opening the tomb, it is possible that Carnarvon, already in fail health, could have been exposed to toxic fungi present within the tomb. Four additional deaths were also attributed to the curse. George de Gould I, a railroad executive whom developed a fever and died in the French Riviera shortly after visiting the tomb. A.C. Mace, one of Carter's men, whom died in 1928 from arsenic poisoning. Richard Bethel, Carter's secretary, died in late 1929 of a suspected smothering, and Carter himself, whom died of lymphoma in March 1939, was believed by some to be a victim of this, if real, very slow-acting curse. To totally suck all the joy out of this legend for you, a study found that only eight of the 58 individuals present or whom assisted with the discovery of the tomb had died within the first 12 years of discovering it. Anxanaman, my love has lasted longer than the temples of our gods. No man ever suffered as I did for you, but the rest you may not know. Not until you are about to pass through the great night of terror and triumph 
until you are ready to face moments of horror for an eternity of love. Until I send back your spirit that has wandered through so many forms and so many ages. But before then, Bust must again send forth death. Death to that boy for whom love is creeping into your heart. Love that would keep you from myself. Love that might bring sickness and even death to you. Awake. Back in 1930s Hollywood, the alleged curse of the mummy and the Western world's Egyptomania, this is the actual term used to describe the interest at the time, was still alive and well. Lemley Jr. hired screenwriter Richard Scheyer to find an already published novel on which to base his desired mummy picture. Scheyer came up empty-handed, but had writer Nina Wilcox Putnam pen a nine-page treatment, an outline for a screenplay, which she based on an Italian cultist called Cagliostro. The story was of a 3,000-year-old magician living in San Francisco, prolonging his life by injecting nitrates. Lemley liked the treatment and gave it to screenwriter John L. Balderston, whom changed the setting to Egypt and renamed the character Imhotep. Instead of a tale of revenge, Balderston changed it to one of lost love. Imhotep desired to revive his long-dead lover using the scroll of Toth, a fictional item invented, well borrowed from an Arthur Conan Doyle story, written by the namesake Egyptian god, whom is also credited with penning the Book of the Dead. The synopsis of the film is thus. Egypt, 1921. Archaeologist Sir Joseph Wemple discovers an ancient Egyptian mummy of a high priest named Imhotep. Wemple's friend, Dr. Muller, gives the mummy a once-over, finding that its organs have not been removed, as was tradition for the time. Muller also sees signs of struggle, believing that Imhotep had been buried alive. Oh yeah, there's also a curse placed on his sarcophagus. Undeterred, Wemple's assistant Ralph opens it and discovers the scroll of Thoth. He translates and reads aloud from the scroll, and if you've ever seen a horror movie, I don't have to tell you what happens next. If you haven't seen a horror movie, shock horror, Imhotep rises from the dead. The sight of the mummy drives the assistant mad, and the mummy escapes with the scroll. A decade later, Imhotep has assumed the identity of Ardith Bay, whom hides his disfigured face with makeup. Imhotep tells the son of Sir Joseph Wemple, Frank, the location of the tomb of Egyptian princess Anaxinamun. Frank and his partner Professor Pearson discover it, presenting the treasures to the Cairo Museum. Upon thanking Ardith Bay for the hot tip, it is revealed that his death was a punishment for his love affair with the princess. Imhotep soon meets Helen, a half-Egyptian woman whom bears a resemblance to his lost princess. Believing her to be the princess's reincarnation, Imhotep attempts to kill her so that he might resurrect her as a mummy, making her his eternal bride. Turns out, Imhotep was right, as Helen remembers who she was and prays to the god Isis for help. A nearby statue of Isis raises its arms and lights the scroll of Thoth ablaze, breaking the spell of Imhotep's immortality, causing him to crumble into dust. That scroll is my property. I bought it from a dealer. It is here in this house. I presume in that room. Nebet, Nebet, We had foreseen this. The scroll is in safe hands and will be destroyed the minute it is known that harm has come to us. You have studied our ancient arts and you know that you cannot harm me. You also know that you must return that scroll to me or die. 
Now tell that weak fool to get that scroll wherever it is and hand it to his Nubian servant. The Nubian? The ancient blood. So you have made him your slave. If I could get my hands on you, I'd break your dried flesh to pieces. But your power is too strong. Carl Freund, who famously gave Dracula its signature look as the film's cinematographer, made his U.S. directorial debut with The Mummy. The film shot over the course of three weeks, with Boris Karloff of Frankenstein fame also taking up the mantle of The Mummy. The makeup Karloff had to wear for this film made Frankenstein's monster look like a simple glam look. Karloff had to start makeup around 11 a.m., not finishing until 7 p.m. Legendary makeup artist Jack Pierce, whom had also created Karloff's Frankenstein makeup, was tasked with creating the mummy as well. Karloff was covered in cotton, colloidian to hold it in place, spirit gum was added to his face, clay was put into his hair, and to finish it all up, he was wrapped in linen bandages that had been treated with acid and broiled in an oven. After those eight hours in makeup, Karloff spent seven hours shooting and then spent another two taking the whole mess off. Karloff would, unsurprisingly, refer to the process as, quote, the most trying ordeal I had ever endured. Luckily for the actor, he only had to be that ornately done up for one day of shooting. Jack Pierce was born in Greece, immigrating to the U.S. as a teenager. Pierce had many jobs within the film industry, including being a stuntman, actor, and even assistant director, before landing in the world of makeup. Pierce was a natural, impressing Carl Emley Sr. with the creation of a makeup for an actor playing a simian who could speak. After the death of Lon Chaney, Universal's original makeup master, Pierce was brought on to create the next generation of monster creations. As the head of Universal's makeup department, Pierce created the looks for Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, the mummy, and the wolfman. His methods were arduous, many taking hours upon hours to apply. When newer, faster methods of makeup became available in the form of foam latex, Pierce resisted it, preferring his own methods using spirit gum. This likely led in part to his unceremonious termination from Universal in 1946. New ownership didn't help either. Pierce worked pretty regularly for the remainder of his career before dying of uremia in 1968 at the age of 79. Pierce's legacy has long surpassed his death, with modern makeup artists like Rick Baker citing Jack Pierce as a source of inspiration. In 2003, Pierce was recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Hollywood Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild. His most enduring legacy, of course, will be the monsters he helped create for the big screen. Oh, Isis, holy maiden, I was thy consecrated vestal. I broke my vows. Save me now. Teach me the ancient summons, the holy spells I've forgotten. I call upon thee as of old. The 
mummy was quite successful, especially in the UK, though to a lesser extent than its other two cohorts, who, unlike the mummy, all had sequels. The mummy has no official sequels, though the character does appear in other Universal Monster films, as did a different mummy. The Mummy's Hand, which came out in 1940, doesn't center around Imhotep, but rather one named Karis. The film reused footage from The Mummy, as well as the entire score from Son of Frankenstein. The Mummy's Tomb followed in 1942, a direct sequel to The Mummy's Hand. Lon Chaney Jr. took up the mantle of The Mummy for this film, the first of three times he would play the role of Karis. It would take Chaney nearly eight hours to get into makeup. Chaney would play Karis again in The Mummy's Ghost and The Mummy's Curse, both in 1944. In 1959, Hammer Productions, whom had previously done their own versions of Dracula and Frankenstein, took a crack at The Mummy. Hammer based their film after The Mummy's Hand and Mummy's Tomb, producing three mummy films altogether, though each was unrelated to the other ones. I thought the Book of Amun Ra was made out of gold. Is made out of gold. This isn't the Book of Amun Ra. This is something else. I think this may be the Book of the Dead. The Book of the Dead? Are you sure you want to be playing around with this thing? It's just a book. No harm ever came from reading a book. What's it say? Amun Ra. Amun Day. It speaks of the night and of the day. Just before the turn of the millennium, Universal released the first film in a remake series, also called The Mummy. The 1999 film is very loosely based on the 1932 film, keeping the names of several characters. Imhotep is still the mummy, and Anaxinamun his last lover. Ardith Bey, Imhotep's pseudonym, is reassigned to another character, a sworn guardian of the mummy's tomb. Other than that, the film had a completely different storyline, save for the mummy's main motivation. Universal had been wanting to make a mummy film for a while, though originally the idea was to make a modest, low-budget film of about $10 million. The project changed directorial hands a few times until director Steven Summers pitched his own idea of a higher-budget adventure film for the project. Summers had loved the original Mummy, having seen it as a young boy, and had been chasing the project for several years. Summers eventually pitched an 18-page treatment to the new powers that be at Universal. The last team had all been fired after Babe, Pig, and the City bombed at the box office. They gave Summers $80 million to make his picture. The film, starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz, with Arnold Vosloo as the titular character, received mixed reviews from critics, but was a box office success, garnering $416.4 million worldwide. No small feat given its opening date proximity to the highly anticipated Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, that came out two weeks later. A sequel was released two years after that called The Mummy Returns, which is probably best known for its questionable CGI in the climactic scenes. The film was also Dwayne The Rock Johnson's cinematic debut. 
an animated series, another atrocious sequel in 2008, and an entire Scorpion King spinoff series followed. The superstition of yesterday and become the reality of today. Think of it, waiting for a new life to come. I should come back very soon now. What terrible power! The nations of the world will run squealing in terror. To a new world of gods and monsters. What you just heard was a segment from the announcement trailer of Universal's Dark Universe. When Marvel's The Avengers came out in 2012, a shift in content began brewing within the industry. Disney had recently purchased Marvel Studios and flexed hard for the first teaming up of all of the Marvel superheroes that the studio had made prior to that point. The Avengers and the 17 films to come after have all made insane amounts of money. The other studios wanted their equivalent. Universal had their monsters. Surely they could do something with that. What Comes Next legitimately bummed me out because I was really looking forward to the Dark Universe. I absolutely love Universal monster movies, so please excuse the impending saltiness. In April of 2012, about a month before the first Avengers film was released, Universal announced their intention to remake The Mummy a mere four years after the last one had come out. Like the first reboot, the film went through several hands before landing in Alex Kurtman's in July 2014. Kurtzman was a well-established screenwriter, but The Mummy would be only his second film as a director after the 2012 low-budget drama People Like Us. 2017's The Mummy was supposed to be the first film in Universal's Dark Universe, a cinematic universe in which all of the monsters from Universal's monster cachet would interact with each other, not unlike the House of films Universal had produced in the 1940s. Tom Cruise was cast as the male lead for the film, a U.S. Army sergeant, and Sophia Batella played the titular character, whom was partially based on Imhotep, as well as the Egyptian goddess Amunet. It was later reported by Variety that Cruise had an insane amount of control over practically every aspect of production, including the ability to rewrite the script and bossing the inexperienced Kurtzman around in the directorial department. He also reportedly reduced the role of The Mummy to expand his own. Universal refused to say anything negative about Cruz regarding these reports, stating, quote, Tom approaches every project with a level of commitment and dedication that is unmatched by most working in our business today. He has been a true partner and a creative collaborator, and his goal with any project he works on is to provide audiences with a truly cinematic movie-going experience. Kurtzman, while not saying anything directly on the cruise matter, later described making the film as, quote, a painful time that ended up being an incredible blessing. Kurtzman, whom had co-written the 2009 Star Trek reboot film, is now writing for the new Star Trek series on CBS All Access. 
The Mummy posted a pretty big loss for the studio, despite making about $410 million worldwide, losing somewhere between $60 to $100 million on the project. The film was ravaged by critics, which box office analysts also believe led to the failure of the film. You'll notice on the recommended viewing for this week's episode that this film ain't on it. That's because I hate it, this is my show, and frankly no one should have to sit through that abomination. Universal had counted all their chickens, and unfortunately for them, none hatched. The studio had already cast several actors for future films, including Russell Crowe as Dr. Jekyll, whom had made an appearance in The Mummy, Javier Bardem as Frankenstein's monster, and Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man. Good thing Universal didn't release a promotional photo featuring all of the actors announcing the franchise. Oh wait, they totally did. Check my social media for this week's episode post for that. Because of the abject failure of The Mummy, the Dark Universe was cancelled and all upcoming films were shelved for the time being. Right, you fools. You've brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You've driven me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and gaping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. There's a souvenir for you. And one for you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> Look, he's all eaten away. Now we're going to move on from the disappointment that was the 2017 state of the Universal Monster movie and go all the way back to the 19th century. Herbert George Wells was born on September 21st, 1866, the son of a British shopkeeper in London. As an adult, he received a scholarship to London's Normal School of Science and studied biology under T.H. Huxley, an activist and proponent of Darwin's theory of evolution. Huxley made a huge impression on Wells, who may have had the inspiration for Jack Griffin, the Invisible Man, as well as his other literary scientists. Wells' interest in education faltered, and in 1887, he left without a degree to return to teaching, because you could do that back then. He began his literary career in earnest in 1895 with the publication of his first novel, The Time Machine. Wells's fourth book was The Invisible Man, released in 1897 in weekly installments before being published as a novel. Here is the synopsis for the novel The Invisible Man. A mysterious man, referred to as the stranger, arrives at a local inn owned by Mr. and Mrs. Hall in the English village of Iping during a snowstorm. The stranger wears a long-sleeved, thick coat and gloves, his face entirely hidden by bandages except for a fake pink nose. He also wears a wide-brimmed hat. He is excessively reclusive, irascible, unfriendly, and introverted. He demands to be left alone and spends most of his time in his rooms, working with a set of chemicals and laboratory apparatus, only venturing out at night. While Griffin, aka the stranger, is staying at the inn, hundreds of strange glass bottles arrive. He becomes the talk of the village with many theorizing as to his origins. Meanwhile, a mysterious burglary occurs in the village. Griffin is running out of money and is trying to find a way to pay for his board and lodging. 
When his landlady demands that he pay his bill, he reveals part of his invisibility to her in a fit of anger. An attempt to apprehend the stranger by police officer Jaffers is thwarted when he undresses to take advantage of his invisibility, fights off his would-be captors, and flees to the Downs. There, Griffin coerces a tramp, Thomas Marvel, into becoming his assistant. With Marvel, he returns to the village to recover three notebooks that contain records of his experiments. When Marvel attempts to betray the Invisible Man, he threatens to kill him. Marvel manages to escape with the three notebooks and is chased to the seaside town of Port Burdock. Marvel finds a local inn and is saved by the people there when the Invisible Man tracks him down. One of the citizens in the bar has a revolver and shoots five rounds, with one of them hitting the invisible man. He takes shelter in a nearby house that turns out to belong to Dr. Kemp, a former acquaintance from medical school. To Kemp, he reveals his true identity. Griffin tells him the story of how he became invisible, how he invented chemicals capable of rendering bodies invisible, which he first tried on a cat, then himself. Griffin burned down the boarding house he was staying in, along with all the equipment he had used to turn invisible to cover his tracks, but he soon realized that he was ill-equipped to survive in the open. He had taken up residence in Ipping to attempt to reverse his condition. Having been driven somewhat mad by the procedure and his experiences, he now imagines that he can make Kemp his secret confederate describing a plan to begin a reign of terror by using his invisibility to terrorize the nation. Kemp reports Griffith to the local authorities and is waiting for help to arrive as he listens to this wild proposal. When Colonel Aide and his men arrive at Kemp's house, Griffin fights his way out and the next day leaves a note announcing that Kemp himself will be the first man to be killed in the reign of terror. Kemp tries to organize a plan to use himself as bait to trap the Invisible Man, but a note that he sends is stolen from his servant by Griffin. Griffin shoots the colonel, then breaks into Kemp's house. The colonel's constables fend him off and Kemp bolts for the town where the local people come to his aid. Griffin is cornered, seized, and savagely beaten by the enraged mob, with his last words being a desperate cry for mercy. Kemp urges the mob to stand away and tries to save the life of his former acquaintance, but it is too late. The invisible man's battered body gradually becomes visible as he dies. A local policeman shouts to have someone cover Griffin's face with a sheet. In the epilogue, it is revealed that Marvel has secretly kept Griffin's notes and, with the help of stolen money, has now become a successful business owner, running the Invisible Man Inn. When not working, Marvel sits in his office trying to decipher the notes in hopes of one day recreating Griffin's work. Because several pages were accidentally washed clean during Marvel's chase of Griffin, and the remaining notes are coded in Greek and Latin, he is completely incapable of understanding them. One day I'll tell you everything. There's no time now. I began five years ago, in secret, working all night, every night, right into the dawn. A thousand experiments, a thousand failures, and then, at last, the great, wonderful day. But Griffin, it's ghastly. The great, wonderful day. The last little mixture of drugs. I couldn't stay here any longer, Kemp. I couldn't let you see me slowly fading away. So I packed up and went to a little village for secrecy and quiet to finish the experiment and complete the antidote, the way back to visible man again. 
I meant to come back just as I was when you saw me last. But the fools wouldn't let me work in peace. I had to teach them a lesson. But why? Why do it, Griffin? Just a scientific experiment at first. That's all. To do something no other man in the world had done. But there's more to it than that, Kemp. I know now. It came to me suddenly. The drugs I took seemed to light up my brain. Suddenly I realized the power I held. The power to rule. To make the world grovel at my feet. H.G. Wells was still alive and well when Universal optioned the book for the 1933 film. Wells, though a great believer in the pictures as an art form, once stating that they would be the most important art form of the 20th century, was wary of his books being made into films. After Paramount did a half-assed job at adapting his novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau, renaming it The Island of Lost Souls in 1932, Wells was not happy with the finished product, despite the picture being relatively well-received. He requested that Universal be more respectful to The Invisible Man. Major differences between The Invisible Man novel and the resulting film come partially from the fact that the film was additionally adapted from Philip Wiley's novel The Murderer Invisible, which also depicts an invisible man. Combining the two resulted in a more sympathetic griffin motivated by ambition instead of lust for power. The griffin of the film also has friends and a fiancé, further motivating the character's actions. The Invisible Man was directed by James Whale, who had just come off of Frankenstein, though the elements of this film that most historians note is the visual effects implemented in order to achieve the illusion of the Invisible Man. Cinematographers John P. Fulton, John J. Mescal, and Frank D. Williams were tasked with pulling off the visual effects. The effects of the invisible man taking off his clothes, or when he had no clothes on, was achieved by shooting actor Claude Rains in a black velvet suit against a black velvet background, which they then combined with a shot of the location in the film, essentially layering cells of film to achieve one uniform image. This was difficult work for Rains, who was claustrophobic and had trouble breathing in the velvet suit. Invisible Man was met with great box office success, the highest grossing of the monster films, say Frankenstein. H.G. Wells was less impressed and complained about the quality of the film, more specifically the mental acuity of the Invisible Man, portrayed in the final product. He decided to voice these complaints at a dinner celebrating the film. Claude Rains' career took off after his portrayal of the Invisible Man, a role he only played once. The London-born Rains, who had made his U.S. film debut in The Invisible Man, went on to sign a long-term contract with Warner Brothers. At Warner, he would primarily play villainous characters. Rains would come back to Universal nine years after Invisible Man to take up the mantle of another Universal monster, one we're not covering this month, The Phantom of the Opera. You've been crying. I want to help you. Why did you do this? For you, Flora. For me? Yes, for you, my darling. I wanted to do something tremendous. To achieve what men of science have dreamt of since the world began. To gain wealth and fame and honor. To write my name above the greatest scientists of all time. I was so pitifully poor. I had nothing to offer you, Flora. I was just a poor, struggling chemist. I shall come back to you, Flora, very soon now. The secret of invisibility lies there in my books. 
I shall work in Kent's laboratory till I find the way back. There is a way back, Flora, and then I shall come to you. I shall offer my secret to the world with all its terrible power. The nations of the world will bid for it, thousands, millions. The nation that wins my secret can sweep the world with invisible armies. The Invisible Man would go on to have sequels, though focusing on different characters. The Invisible Man Returns was first, coming out in 1940, starring a horror icon in his own right, Vincent Price, as the Invisible Man, while actor John Sutton played the brother of Reigns' character from the first film. The Invisible Woman, which also came out in 1940, starred Virginia Bruce's as the titular character, though this film was more of a screwball comedy than a horror film. Next came 1942's Invisible Agent, which was a spy film. John Hall portrayed the grandson of the Invisible Man, whom works as a spy during World War II. Hall portrayed the Invisible Man in the next sequel as well, The Invisible Man's Revenge in 1944, though in this film Hall plays a convict who uses the serum to go on a crime spree. Like the other monsters, The Invisible Man was also featured in the Abbott and Costello films, appearing in Meet Frankenstein in 1948, and obviously in Meet the Invisible Man in 1951. I went to his house today. You went to Adrian's house? Yes. You just walked right in? I found something that can prove what I'm experiencing. That can prove that Adrian is stalking me. What is that? It's some kind of suit that Adrian has built. And it has cameras and it somehow... What? Several films throughout the years, most notably 2000's Hollow Man, which was loosely based on Wells' novel, have attempted to deal with the invisible antagonist, but none have the same success that the original franchise had. As mentioned early in the episode, a reboot of The Invisible Man had been in the works for about 10 years when it was announced that Johnny Depp would play the character in The Dark Universe. When The Dark Universe fell apart, the studio focused on producing individual films instead of one shared world. Depp's movie was scrapped, and producer Jason Blum, known for his successful track record of horror films through his production company Blumhouse, produced a 2020 remake with Universal. Directed by Lee Wannell, a frequent collaborator of Blum's, the 2020 remake of The Invisible Man is a completely different story than the source material taking place in modern day and implementing modern technology instead of a serum to achieve invisibility. The film was critically well-received, though financially it's hard to say, as its theatrical run was cut short by the COVID-19 pandemic. Additionally, a film titled The Invisible Woman, whether or not it's a sequel is unclear, is reportedly in the pipeline at Universal, and, as of July 2020, so is a sequel to The Invisible Man. The Invisible Man will be back in cinemas, it seems, much sooner than any of his other horror counterparts. And 
that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. In my episode notes, you can find my sources as well as some recommended viewing. Please note that the availability I have listed is based on the American market. International availability may vary. I do as much research as I can in the week it takes me to write and produce each episode, so if I got something wrong, please email me and I'll correct it on a future episode like I did today. Also, I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out for the time being, so if you could rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. Next week... Well, the end of this week for Halloween, we're wrapping up the Universal Monster Mash with the youngest monsters, the Wolfman and the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. He did the mash. He did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. He did the mash.